Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. The All Eyes Visual All VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Paul Bernstein. In this episode, Dr. Bernstein explains how increasing macular pigment can improve sports and visual performance. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. And tune into our brand new radio show, Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Central Time on AM 1280, The Patriot. What could macular pigment be used as a biomarker for? Okay, so... Um... We've looked at it in a number of different ways. Obviously, one of the biomarkers that we're using that is for eye disease. So we look at it's the levels. Um, we have done some new uh, epidemiology study and others have, uh, well, as well that low levels of macular pigment at least make us concerned that patients may be at risk for age-related macular degeneration. For other, other way, things that we look at, the unusually low levels could be a sign of, of various eye diseases. We see it low in certain cone dystrophies. We see levels of macular pigment are extremely low in a, in a, in a more, in a, in a, an increasingly recognized condition known as macular telangiectasia type two. And we, um, so when we see low level, I, I do that as a screening in some of my patients when I'm worried about that as a possibility. And then other things that uh, that other groups have looked at is whether macular pigment, the amount in your retina, can reflect what's happening in your brain, because lutein and zeaxanthin are also concentrated in the brain, not to the levels we see in the retina, but um, and we, as you've mentioned before, and we discussed, uh, lutein and zeaxanthin may be important as as uh, in helping cognition and improving improving uh, cognitive function and perhaps even 
decreasing risk of dementia and other Alzheimer's disease uh, related uh, problems. So it may be useful to be screening using the eye as a reflection of what's going on in the rest of the body. And can we use OCT for that as well? Um, people have tried doing that, yes. And there are some, especially what's called OCTA or OCT angiography, where people are looking at at the whether the what's going the micro vessels of the retina may be useful as a screening process, screening for changes that are happening, you know, more hidden in the brain. So that's that uh, using using eye scans can be very important. Yes. And how about diabetes or a digital eye strain? Um, for diabetes, we've looked at it. It's not it. Uh, diabetics can have a lot of nutritional problems. I personally, in the studies that I've I've seen, have not seen a big change in macular pigment, uh, strongly associated with diabetes. For eye strain, that's uh, work that has been I think done a little bit more in Japan, where people are are very you know are into looking at the various supplements and the macular pigment high levels of macular pigment can be uh important as a as a blue light filter can help against eye strain and so that may be something that uh can be used to to try to identify people who are having unusual problems glare problems loss of contrast sensitivity i've have a, a, several patients that i've seen through the years where they've had unusual complaints like loss of contrast sensitivity and not just not seeing well. And a number of them, when I actually measure their macular pigment, are very low. And so I I put them on supplements that are that I find are very bioavailable, bring them back three to six months later. And, and many of them, their macular pigment is up if we can get it to absorb better or they can improve their diet. And they seem to be seeing better. And you know, you it you have to be doing to actually quantify that can be fairly difficult. You have to do contrast sensitivity measurements where you're looking at subtle changes on the eye chart, if they're a change of a letter or two, but subjectively, many, many patients can be can notice an improvement with getting their macular pigment better. Well, macular pigment comes from lutein, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin is what the macular pigment is made out of. What does the macular pigment do in the eye, what is, so having those nutrients becoming macular pigment, tell us about the functions of that. Sure, so the macular pigment uh, is concentrated right in the fovea. There's still some carotenoids even in the more, more, di more distant parts of the retina, but really it's targeted right to the center. We have, um, and it consists, as, as we've been talking a lot about lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin, you know, they, it, the, the ratios and the amounts in the, in the retina are distinct from what we consume in our diet. It's much easier to consume lutein than it is to consume zeaxanthin in our diets. And the ratio is about five to one, typically, in the American diet. Uh, mesozeaxanthin, we don't consume in our diet. And it's, but when you get it, when you actually, uh, punch out a macula, analyze it, and we analyze it by HPLC, we see that the ratio, rather than the five to one to zero ratio of lutein to zeaxanthin to mesozeaxanthin that, you, that we get in our diet, is actually one to one to one when we do the measurements that, in that area. 
So that shows that there's very much a difference in preference by the macula for which carotenoids are there. And this is probably driven in a number of different ways, but probably driven by, um, by in part by the uh, binding proteins that we've been studying through the years that target it to the retina, also some of the transport proteins. But still, the we still have this unusual compound, mesozeaxanthin, that's present really pretty much only in the macula of the eye, They're almost nowhere else in the body. So one has to, we and others have wondered, how does it get there? Why is it there? And what are the real ratios? And so one of the things that we published very recently was to look at the ratios even more uh, at, a, at a much more focused level using our resonance Raman spectroscopy technique. We found that at the macula, right at the fovea, more than 90% of the carotenoids is actually zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin. There's actually not that much lutein. So how does the mesozeaxanthin, which is about half of, which is about equal in amount to the zeaxanthin, getting there? And we don't consume it in the diet, but it's being made in the eye. And we actually, we did a study about six or seven years ago where we looked at chickens who were developing in the egg and getting their carotenoids from their egg yolk. And, from, and we could prove that the mesozeaxanthin was not present in the egg yolk, but was actually being formed in the eye itself. And we did some fairly sophisticated molecular biology and biochemistry, and we were able to find that the, that the mesozeaxanthin was being made from lutein itself, not zeaxanthin. It was being, made, being converted. And the enzyme that does that turns out to be the same enzyme for the visual cycle, the, the RPE65 enzyme that I've been working on back in the 1980s. So we have an enzyme that can convert lutein to mesozeaxanthin, and that, and that helps, I think, boost our levels of the zeaxanthins in the, in the macula. And they see once we have that high level of this yellow pigment, that acts as a light filter against the blue light that's coming into the eye that can be very damaging to the membranes of the eye. And we also, uh, it also is a source of antioxidants in, in the region for oxidative stress. So now the other option for our mesozeaxanthin is to take it as a supplement. It's, uh, there are supplements on the market and uh, my colleague, John Nolan and his work in, in, in um, Ireland has been has shown that the mesozeaxanthin can be given as a supplement. We still don't know if it's better. We know it can be given as a supplement. Uh, whether it's never had a good head-to-head -head test against zeaxanthin itself, but mesozeaxanthin can also can also be given as a supplement. But I would say, just like our um, studies that we've seen in pregnant women, zeaxanthin is also a very important nutrient should not be neglected. It's not, you know, people know about lutein uh, really a lot, zeaxanthin, not quite as much. And we need to, you know, rethink even, you know, if, if the current ratios in our supplements that are often five to one is the best ratio, or should we be giving more zeaxanthin? I think it's, it's, a, it's a question that's gonna require still good future good clinical studies. Now there are peach there are a certain number of patients that can't convert lutein to mesozeaxanthin. 
Now, what, um, what kind of risk are they at? Yeah, that would be, they would be more at risk. The, the defects that would be in RP65, I think are pretty rare. So I, it's hard to tell. We can't actually measure the amount and activity of RP65 in a particular person. But it's someone who's not responding properly to a lutein, uh, to an AREDS2 type supplement, certainly could be considered to try to try a mesozeaxanthin supplement if they if they'd like to switch. Now we talk about lutein and we talked about the foods that contain lutein. If you could just review that again, which foods contain lutein? Your favorites mm -hmm. for for that. So the favorites are dark green leafy vegetables. And so, and so that would include spinach, kale, uh, things like uh, broccoli. Now, if you ask about favorites, those aren't always my favorite <laughs> vegetables, of course. <laughs> um, but the, the, darker, the darker they are, the more, the more likely they are to have a lot of lutein in them. There are some fruits that are, and vegetables, uh, the, the more colorful fruits, often are beta carotene, but some of them are zeaxanthin. So zeaxanthin is a little harder to come by. Uh, corn is a good source. Um, orange peppers are, are quite good. Uh, persimmons can be good. And so those are, those are some of the sources. And then eggs are a pretty good source of lutein, especially, and they have some zeaxanthin. And because eggs have some fat to them, it's a quite bioavailable source, I'd say, better than, better than many fruits and vegetables. But the bottom line is really to consume a, a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. Now, it's, it's my understanding that in Mexico, they add mesozeaxanthin to the feed of chickens. So the eggs have actually have mesozeaxanthin in it. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, so the, and that has to do with the fact that it's, it's real, as in an industrial process, it's relatively easy to convert lutein to mesozeaxanthin. So they've added that to give the, give the particular color that's preferred in Mexico for egg yolks. And it gets concentrated in the egg yolks. And so one semi-natural source of getting mesozeaxanthin is to get it from Mexican eggs. When we did our studies looking at our, at our, at the, at the lutein and zeaxanthin in, in Utah eggs, these were free-range chickens, and they had they were had no mesozeaxanthin, in, at least because they for what they were getting. But other than that, the other sources for mesozeaxanthin include uh, some fish skin and turtle fat and various other things that, and shrimp shells that people don't usually want to consume. So, you know, every once in a while, I go to a Japanese restaurant, and my cousin always orders salmon skin. And I think to myself, I wonder if that has mesozeaxanthin in it. Yeah, probably has some, yes. You know, so it's pretty interesting. So I want to ask you about uh, macular degeneration. You know, what's the epidemiology of macular degeneration and where is the incidence of macular degeneration going forward? Okay, so macular degeneration is... It's a major health problem in, in the United States and in the developing world um, and the developed world. As the, because our population is aging so much as you know, living longer, and it's it's a disease that 
doesn't uh, that doesn't show signs typically in your 50s, but when people start getting into their 60s, people start showing the early signs of age-related macular degeneration, often with no symptoms, but they have drusen, these yellowish deposits underneath the retina, some pigmentary changes. And then the starting in the 60s, the the rate in the population incidence of age-related macular degeneration and prevalence starts going up dramatically, almost exponentially. And so by, by the time people are in their 70s and older, 30% of patients have at least some signs of, of age-related macular degeneration, and the percentage just goes up with age. So as the population ages, it's becoming more and more common. There are many different risk, risk factors for age-related macular degeneration. Obviously, age is important. We know that heredity is very important on this and probably accounts for 50%, for more than 50% of the risk. So that's, that's something that uh, has to be factored in. And we know that, um, that other, other things that we can't change, such as being lightly pigmented, uh, you know, being Caucasian is a higher risk than being uh, being a darkly pigmented person. So those those we can't change, but we as eye care professionals and the public want to be empowered and, and not have age-related macular degeneration. So that's why nutrition is one of the most important factors that we've discovered both through um, both through epidemiology and now through clinical studies such as the AREDS-2 study and various others that have shown how that nutritional interventions can be very important. I have to go back for a second because we forgot to talk about goji berries and, yes. and zeaxanthin because that has a ton of zeaxanthin in it. And that is correct. It has yeah. many amino acids. I think it has more vitamin C than an orange. And mm -hmm. uh, if you could talk about, and they taste good. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's a good point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So one of the things that I've learned from my patients is I, I listen to them. There are people here in Utah are asking me about different supplements, different foods they could be consuming. And so there's been, this has been going on throughout history and many cultures have, have foods or herbs that they think could be very useful for the eyes. And one of those going back into traditional Chinese medicine that's been known for a long time are these goji berries, which are bright orange, almost raisin-like uh, berries that can, be, um, that can be consumed. And those are an extraordinarily high, rich source of zeaxanthin. And so that, that is, it's been reputed in the Chinese literature going back literally centuries, if not millennia, to to either consume the goji berries or have it in a tea or some sort of a soup or cook with them. And that's shows where the traditional medicine got it definitely right because the, the zeaxanthin there are, is, is a great source and was, it truly is important for the eyes. You know, a handful of them is almost as probably as good as taking a supplement. Yeah, I think that could be true. You mentioned the ARAD study, the original ARAD study, where did they come up with the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals they use for the ARAD study? Where, where did that come from? So I have to admit it's before my time, even I'm not old enough for that, but uh, when they were formulating it, they, they had looked at a number of different epidemiology studies that had been done. And 
um, and just some of the basic biochemistry. But we're talking about the, the biochemistry, the nutritional biochemistry of the 1970s and 80s. And so the, the beta carotene was known even earlier, as we discussed, as a source for vitamin A, uh, was thought to be helpful for the eye. And that's where they came up with beta carotene at the 15,000 units uh, dosage that they were to, uh, that was recommended. The or it's actually 25,000 units. The the um, the the vitamin C and vitamin E are antioxidant vitamins that had been at least linked from epidemiology studies, and then zinc had been uh, was known as a as a cofactor for some antioxidant vitamins, and there had been some small studies done actually here at University of Utah long before I came here, where they where giving zinc supplements at least showed some promise in looking in uh, in treating age-related macular degeneration. So they took their best the best science of the 1980s and they came up with this formulation called the AREDS one formulation, and they did it. And the age the um, but they didn't know about lutein and zeaxanthin back then. They barely knew about it. It was just coming on the radar. It wasn't easily available in any pure enough compounds to use in a clinical study. So they started with the um, with the original AREDS formulation and did a 5,000-person study for five years that cost a very large amount of money, but they were successful in showing that, that taking supplements uh, was better uh, and slowed down the risk of age-related macular degeneration by 25%. And people who were already had at least some of the early signs of age of age-related macular degeneration. So that was a very important study. That was one of the first first large clinical studies that actually showed a positive result and changed clinical practice dramatically. I remember when it first came out, we we then found that it um, that we needed to uh, take that we needed to uh, start giving supplements to the proper patients. The, um, so, but that was only the first step. Basically, we wanted to know if age, if we could then um, improve, the, improve the supplement. And we decided that uh, to look at the new results that we had, that lutein and zeaxanthin could be more important than beta carotene and could also decrease and increase the safety of the AREDS formulation because we, as AREDS-1 was being done, we noted that uh, that it was, it was in several studies had come out that, uh, that giving large doses of beta carotene like we were giving in the AREDS study could increase the risk of lung cancer, especially in smokers. So lutein and zeaxanthin turn out to be much safer. They don't increase the risk of lung cancer and they're more targeted to the eye. So that's the important one that we added into the AREDS-2 study. And we also added in, we also tested whether omega-3 fatty acids could be important as well. MacU Health, your science born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, 
and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. That brings up a good point because the ARADS comes out with reports every so often. And, you know, I think, what report are you up to? I'm, you know, maybe report 30 or... Yeah, it's in the 20s or 30s, yeah. You know, so, and one of the reports was on on omega-3s and it showed a very positive, uh, a very positive effect with lowering the risk of macular degeneration. Uh, it's high, is around 40% or so. And they had, I think, like 8,000 patients in it. And then they had people eat fish twice a day to show that it decreased the risk of macular degeneration. But as with studies, then with AREDS too, show that omega-3s maybe aren't as important. What kind of omega-3 did they use in AREDS too? Uh, was it a triglyceride form? How many milligrams? And why do you think that the the report 20, I think it's AREDS report 22 with omega-3 showed that it decreased the risk? Yeah, it's it's kind of complicated on this. The They used a fish oil supplement. I. I can't remember whether it was the, the triglyceride or not, but it was EPA uh, was about, icosapentaenoic acid was about 60, 650 milligrams and the DHA, the docosahexaenoic acid was 350 milligrams. And that was a choice that was a tough choice to decide. Do you give one, do you give the other, what ratio? And I, I don't, uh, and that was their best, the, the best result that was, I think, correlated well with fish and fish intake. And so kind of taking a step back, epidemiology and some of the, the studies that you may be citing from the AREDS uh, 2 study, it's shown that fish intake is really important against, against in preventing age-related macular degeneration. The, the number of, you know, the eating whole fish, we know there's something very important. We think that DHA and EPA are the important factors, but we don't know for sure. You know, and it and with the ARIDS two study, when we gave the the DHA and EPA, it really didn't show that there was an improvement. And either the patients were eating more fish than we thought and had a kind of a baseline baseline large amount of fish of fish intake that was masking any possible uh, benefit of supplementation. Or there's something else in fish that we're missing, or some form of the of the DHA, or is it longer chain fatty acids, and are these markers for those? So right now, with the official AREDS two recommendations, we don't recommend supplementation yet for the for the uh, adding the 1,000 milligrams of the combined fish oil. I still ask patients about their fish consumption. Absolutely. And as here in Utah, and I'm sure many other parts of the country, there's some people that would never touch a fish if they could ever, if they could get away with it. And so, you know, fish oil or an algae oil may be some, something that they should be at least considering. And so there's a lot to learn. And I think there's still, that's a new frontier and one that we're working on in my laboratory is what are, what's going on with omega-3 fatty acids? Are we really giving the right ones? Are they really... How are they getting concentrated in the eye and how are they helping? Have you ever thought about 
you know, Chris Kenobi, who's who's an ophthalmologist, who's done a lot of work on macular degeneration, and he talks about before 1900, there was basically no macular degeneration, basically no cardiovascular disease and, and cancer. And now here we are, and, you know, all these chronic diseases run together and they're booming. It, so it can't be just genetics. What can we do? And if you... Dr. Bernstein, who is the world expert on this, wants to decrease his risk of getting macular degeneration. What would you do to decrease your risk of getting it? Okay. Well, you know, taking first for your first question is, is macular degeneration just a modern problem? I don't know. You know, I think that there was, I think being an ophthalmologist or an optometrist a hundred years ago was probably pretty tough. Even, you know, that you, you could do there's only so much you could see and only so much you could do. I, I suspect it was there, but of course people didn't live into, you know, it was less common to be living into their seventies and eighties and people, people just went blind and that's what people, and they thought that was the normal thing, but it is rising now. Uh, clearly there's some, both, both genetics, aging and our environment are taking a toll on us. And as, you know, as I, I start getting a little older and start seeing you know, my macular pigment dropping a little bit because when I measure it, it's, you know, is that, you know, that's the time to start thinking about improving my diet, taking supplements and all of that. So I've, when I talk with patients and they're worried about age-related macular degeneration, maybe they have a family history, I talk to them, I try to be very as evidence-based as I can. And I, I know, we know that in your 40s and 50s and how the epidemiology studies were done, those were looking at diet. So I give Dietary counseling is the number one thing that I talk about, the fruits and vegetables, eating the whole compounds, because not only the whole the whole uh, fruits, because not only is that going to be good for your eyes, that's going to be good for your heart, it's going to be good for your skin, it's going to be good for your, your brain, all of that's going to be very, very useful. And so I talk about diet. Um, I often, you know, I, I may offer them measuring their skin carotenoids. I may offer measuring their eye carotenoids and see, see how they're doing. And then if they're showing any signs of macular degeneration, potentially if they have a very strong family history, and if they're just nutrient nutritionally, they're not going to, they're not going to be able to change their diet, which can be a challenge, of course, in someone who's 60 or 70 years old, that's a lot of years of habits you're going to be changing then taking supplements can be important. And that's when ARIDS-2 and omega-3 fatty acid supplements and other nutri nutrients can be important. How about vitamin D? Vitamin D is at least is a, a new frontier. There's some epidemiology that's showing that it's important. It has not been tested enough in a randomized clinical trial for many eye care professionals like me to be pushing that. Um, vitamin D is very important, obviously, in bone health. And we've been, and, you know, bone scans have certainly shown that a lot of people are vitamin D deficient. I would I'd like to ask you about the CREST trial uh, that you've mentioned John Nolan. I've had him on this show and he was instrumental in doing CREST AMD and the CREST trial. Can you talk a little bit about those and how that could help us clinically? So with, with the CREST trials, they're looking at 
and I, I obviously John is much more of an expert on these. They're looking at the roles of supplementation and looking at can they improve both macular pigment and and visual function as well. And they and they were looking at both um, you know at at various different supplement formulations, but they were able to show that supplementation, especially in age-related macular degeneration patients and ones with, with the early stages, that there is some improvement in visual function. It was small, but it showed improvements in contrast sensitivity, uh, some improvements in, in letters read. So that kind of, it suggests that there, that there is a role for supplementation and can be, and can lead to some functional improvements as well. And they used all three LMZ, yeah. right? Lutein, zeaxanthin, yeah. and mesozoan. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were generally using all three. So I, I saw recently come across the wire, and I, this is something that's been reported before. But somebody who has drusen, and it correlates with having heart disease. Is the eye the frontier, the new frontier, because our technology is getting so good, and we could see inside the eye at eight microns for diagnosing many systemic disease? Yeah, I think that's true, that it's, it can be, it can, it's a very accessible marker. We are finding that, um, you know, not only Drusen, but we are looking at uh, something called FLEO, fluorescence lifetime imaging ophthalmoscopy, which uh, images different compounds in the eye and can pick up uh, changes that we think may be associated not only with macular degeneration, but possibly Alzheimer's disease, other, and we haven't explored heart disease, but that would be something we would want to be looking at. And the macular pigment can be a marker of generalized nutritional health and whether it's, and it's so much more accessible than drawing someone's blood and sending it off to a lab. Leo, how soon will the average practitioner be able to use that in their office to be able to help patients? Oh, I Still a number of years off. Uh, we've had the only FLEO machine in the United States for the last six years. Um, Heidelberg Engineering, which is making them, has another dozen that they're starting to deploy, but they are very expensive. They cost three, three to four times, three times as much as the Spectralis itself. So it's going to take a while there. It's not an easy technology. So I would say it's still five to 10 years off if we're but I, they're hoping someday to do that. And, and what does it stand for again? I'm sorry. It stands for fluorescence lifetime imaging ophthalmoscopy. So uh, when we, we sometimes measure the fluorescence of the eye and the conventional fluorescence is measuring the, just the, the intensity of it coming back. And we not, but they've changed the way it's done. So we actually count not only the number of photons coming back, but we find we count how soon they come back. And so that adds another dimension to to distinguish other pigments and to and to discover their and to um, assess their environment as well. So for us that are using autofluorescent technology, yep. FAF, this is like autofluorescence on steroids, I guess. It would be yes, and yeah, and and it basically you have to switch out the laser and have a pulsed laser. You have to have very sophisticated counters, and that's why photon counters that time it and gate it. So that's why the price goes up three to four fold right away. I want to ask you, as we finish up here, just a couple more things. The blue light coming off digital devices, 
Mm-hmm. You know, there is some studies that show that blue light can cause apoptosis to some of the retinal cells and, uh, and cause some free radicals. How, how, in your mind, how dangerous do you think the blue light coming off these computers that people are using every day are because it's unopposed and there's no UV and infrared and imperfective mm-hmm. infrared? And number two is it may, if it's not dangerous to the average person who has no sign of macular degeneration, do you think it's dangerous to someone who has macular degeneration and do you think they should filter the blue light? Mm-hmm. Um it's an interesting question. I don't think it, I'm, there's no definitive answer. The, we, there are studies that have shown, you know, that blue light is at least at very high intensities can be damaging to the eye. The amount coming back from our screens is not extraordinarily high, but our time of exposure is is obviously extraordinarily high. And it, it's surprising it can still keep growing, but it is right now. So um, people need to need to back off a little bit, probably need to take rests from it. And the blue light filters of that people are doing, whether digitally or physical filters, will could potentially make a difference. But these are really, really hard studies to prove that it actually makes a difference. You know, you're you're gonna have to study. Uh, in a to try to study people people in a controlled manner to see whether it would make a difference. So, if people, I you know, it's certainly something I would encourage patients to consider. I think some people don't like the colors that they get, so you have to get at least the proper filtering to make a difference too. If you had macular degeneration stage three, mm-hmm. and you know you were at risk of going wet or getting geographic atrophy. Would you filter your blue? Would you lower the amount of blue light looking at a digital device for yourself? Mm-hmm. Would you filter it with glasses? How would you handle it, or would you not worry about it because there's not enough studies? I personally would say right now I'm not. Maybe for better or worse, I'm not worrying about it enough. Maybe I should be worrying about it more. But it's something to think about. I think it's something I need to think about more. Now, in, in the in the ARAD study that showed that if somebody had a category one and they had a few few drusen, that supplementation really didn't help. But that was over how many years? How many years was that over? Um, that was five to ten years, I think. So, yeah. so if you personally had some drusen, we took we imaged you. Uh, Dr. Paul Bernstein, world expert, number one in the world on this topic, or if you're not number one, very close to number one, would you take a supplement or would you say, well, ARAD showed nothing happened in five years, so I don't think I need to supplement, but there are drusen there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, you know, not not all drusen are the same. You know, there are some, we've learned that the very small drusen are not not quite as important. The intermediate size of any intermediate drusen should get, or larger should get that person's attention. We've also learned that there's other things that were not properly studied or back then because we didn't know. There's uh, what are called pseudodrusen, which are deposits underneath the retina that uh, that we think are fairly high risk, actually. So those are other changes. I would I look at the totality. I also I, I look at is the macular pigment low? Uh, should that be another another study? And or another is that another 
factor that tells you, well, that person really is, whether nutritionally or something biochemically in the eye, that they, that could be that should be boosted. And then, you know, you can we also have to start thinking about what's the role of should we be genetically tested? Would you want to get even more information about your genetic risk too, to whether you should be supplementing? And so all of that kind of goes into everything, but I encourage patients, I'm it's hard to tell patients not to take not to not to take supplements if they're worried about it. And I, I say that I just tell them the facts. It hasn't been, it's not easy to study. Uh, but you know, first step is to improve your diet. And if that's not working for you for whatever reason, consider a supplement would be the next step. And one of the things that we're doing now is kind of a little bit reversal on the on the same question is we've just we're just about to open a study here at the University of Utah called the Magenta Study, where we're looking at the role of genetic testing in uh, primarily focused on children of AMD patients, but in their 40s and 50s, uh, when they're coming in, often bringing in their parent uh, to, for their injections or just their, their six-month checkup and saying, well, is there a role for testing someone genetically and really identifying the people who are at high risk and will they actually, and if we tell them you're at high risk or low risk, would you make risk-based changes of your, either in your diet or start taking supplements? And no one has ever studied that. And right now, the American Academy of Ophthalmology doesn't re recommend that we test anyone. But we asked, well, how do you know that? How do we know that people aren't really going to make changes in their lifestyle if they, if they change their, if we, if they learn their genetic risk? So, we're setting up a randomized clinical trial where some patients and some of the subjects are going to be told their risk of macular degeneration, high, medium, and low. And some we're not going to tell them for a year. And then we're going to monitor them and see what they do, see if they make changes in lifestyle, see if they quit smoking, see if they lose weight, see if they improve their diet, see if they take supplements, you know, based on the, the current evidence. And so we're very excited about that. That's going to be opening very soon. We'll enroll our first patients next month. You know, genetic testing has been a uh, very political football for some reason in, in, in this field, in our field of ophthalmology and optometry. I'm not sure why, but, you know, there was, a gen there was genetic testing and whether or not you should take zinc, whether you have a defect mm -hmm. in complement factor H or arms too. Can you comment on that? And, and what do you, what do you think the truth lies? Okay. So yeah, that was a very controversial time on this. So the, the AREDS uh, two study was a randomized trial that was designed to ask very specific questions about lutein, zeaxanthin, omega-3 fatty acids. But with any large clinical trial, there's lots of other information and they did, they were able to then go back and do genetic testing and look at risk factors for that. And there were certain groups that reanalyzed the data and said that certain gen genotypes would do better or worse, depending on whether they were on the supplements. And that generated a lot of controversy because some, some people said that's, a hypo doing that is at least an interesting question, but it, the study was not designed to give that answer. It's designed, and so it really, it shows that it shows a direction for future research. And it basically implies you need to do, 
even though there are signals that it's important that your genotype might determine which supplements work for you, it was not strong enough evidence uh, to drive uh, to actually change our nutritional recommendations. It was enough to say we need to do more studies. That was the National Eye Institute's um, response to this: is to to be very purist now and. The other people in the other camp said, no, it's too expensive to do that. We're just going to keep analyzing the data. So I, being an ARIDS2 researcher, I, I, I am with the ARIDS2 camp, I will say that. And so I, I was not convinced enough by that to make, to alter my practice. I think it would be a good st future study to be looked at, looking at prospectively. How about al alcohol and exercise? Al alcohol increasing your risk of AMD, cataracts, exercise lowering your risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so alcohol, these are both epidemiology studies uh, and lifestyle studies, which are difficult to be definitive by, but there's a lot of interesting results. One is that Exercise, as you would expect for many, for both heart health, brain health, and for eye health, reasonable, good, regular exercise, aerobic exercise can be very, very helpful and is encouraged for all of our patients and seems to be, there's, there's very little downside for the health except whatever you do to your joints, of course. The um, alcohol, there's been a lot of studies that have shown that in moderation, a uh, number of studies have shown that in moderation, alcohol may actually be a little bit protective. You know, some of the uh, the red wine may have resveratrol, other antioxidants that may be important. But as as we know, with alcohol, too much is not a good idea in general. And just like in eye health, there are studies that have shown that excessive alcohol is not going to be healthy for the eyes. But that could be complicated by people who consume excessive alcohol or are also probably nutritionally compromised as well. And how about anticoagulants, antiplatelets? That was, we, we were telling patients not to take those, not to take aspirin for a while if they had macular degeneration. Where, yeah. where, do, where do we stand on that now? I think that follow-up studies have, have shown that the, that the risk of aspirin was overblown. And, and so I don't, it's not something I routinely ask my patients or ask them to change. I think that for it hasn't been strongly, you know, in terms of we sometimes give aspirin for people who've had vein occlusions or other things that are that are problems in the eye, but it's it's aspirin and the mild anticoagulants are not not helpful, not hurtful. The strong anticoagulants, obviously, if you have wet macular degeneration and you're on very high doses of warfarin. You can have massive bleeds, and so that can be a risk factor. So my last question, I want to follow up on the work of Jim Stringham and the good things. You take people with regular vision and make it even better, like a supervision. Yeah. Uh, if you could talk about some of the things that uh, lutein, zeaxanthin, measles, zeaxanthin, increasing the macular pigment could do to make your vision even better. Okay, yeah, so... Um, John Stringham has done, or Jim, Jim Stringham has done some really nice work. Uh, we, there are certain people in, who are in sports, in the military, 
other things, or even in medicine, if you're a surgeon, perhaps, that uh, vision is the best vision possible is going to be really important. We're pushing the limits of what humans can do. And so having the best, best possible vision can be important. And he's found that taking supplements of lutein and zeaxanthin raise the macular pigment. We know that very well. And in various, you know, simulation, you know, of very controlled simulated environments that, that really um, look at contrast sensitivity, look at visual function in, um, you know, in, in, at, at the extremes that supplements with lutein and zeaxanthin even in normal normal people, even higher levels can improve that can improve that function. It's something that, for mortals like you and me, you know, we may not notice. But for someone who's trying to be a top baseball player, someone who's trying to be a fighter pilot, that can be that can be a make or break thing for their career or even their life. So, it it just shows how important that is. And there's even subtle changes like that probably you know, provide a selective uh, benefit, you know, through evolution through the years, you know, if you, if you had better vision, and you were, you know, a, uh, a Stone Age person, and that made you a better hunter, you were more likely to survive and do better and to and to reproduce. So it just shows that optimal vision can be can is good for all of us. You know, for baseball players, uh, temporal processing speed, Mm -hmm. I, it's my understanding that a lot of baseball players do take supplements that ha that increase macular pigment. Yeah, I think that's common, and that, and you know, there's there's probably, you know, people are being making you know good careers being consultants to the to the to the sports sports and and military. My my last question is: a patient comes in and they're very sensitive to the light, mm -hmm. and they have a lot of photophobia. And nothing else is wrong. Their eye is fine, but they do have blue eyes. And I measure their macular pigment and their pigment is low. And mm -hmm. I put them on a supplement like lutein, mesozeaxanthin, zeaxanthin. zeaxanthin. Um, I, is it fair to say that there's a very good chance that their, their light sensitivity will get better? I think it's, it's possible. I've seen, the, I've seen the same thing. There's some patients, not everyone. Obviously, there's many other causes of light sensitivity, but that's that is a a reasonable approach to at least try on patients. It's low low risk, and and good and potentially very high benefit. With that, I want to thank Dr. Paul Bernstein for joining me today. He's he's the man. He's the guru. He's the man, and we just are so proud to to be able to to know you, to be associated with you. Uh, people want to learn more about you and your work. How can they do that? Oh, uh, how to learn more about my work? You can, uh, I'm. You can go go to my to the Moran Eye Center's website and learn about what what we're doing there at and the research work is one of the and my research page there. There are you know you can go to PubMed and learn about all the articles that we're doing. But uh, and I'm happy to be on this program and really get and get known to a very wider population out there. And again, I want to thank Dr. Paul Bernstein. He's out there trying to find cures for blinding diseases that we don't have cures for. And he's really a special person. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me today. And I know people watching this will get so much out of it. Thank you, Dr. Bernstein. Thank you for inviting me on.
your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. The All Eyes Visual Hall VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.